All right. Good morning, church. Good morning, good morning. You are in for an awesome treat today. I'm going to keep this really brief. And the only thing I'm going to do is introduce you uh, to the family that we have before you. Uh, When we started It's Complicated, uh, the It's Complicated series, we wanted to bring back the family that spoke two years ago when we first were were, uh, speaking about this issue in the initial It's Complicated series way back then in 2013. And that's Christopher Yuan and his parents, Angela and Leon. Angela is getting over something in her throat, and so every once in a while she'll be coughing, and her voice isn't at 100%, but she was willing to be here anyway, so we're super grateful for that. Um, this is one of those uh, subject matters that, again, when we, we, when we started It's Complicated, we wanted to tackle things that Christians either speak, uh, speak about in ignorance or Christians just speak about poorly or can't completely wrap their mind around. And I can't be honest with you, there isn't a more pertinent or relevant issue in the church today, let alone the United States of America, as far as what we're talking about. And I would say talking about, in a lot of ways, really, really poorly without a whole lot of insight. Um, And so that was something that we really wanted to tackle. Um, There's many people who've wondered if we, you know, specifically planned, had the foresight to plan that this was going to follow the SCOTUS uh, ruling in the Supreme Court. And, and for those of you who thought that we had the insight and the foresight to do that this far in advance, um, you're absolutely right. That was, that's what we did, and um, you're welcome. No, actually, this was, uh, this was one of the only weekends that the Yuans were available. They're, they're booked... <laughs> okay, so that's the, that's the truth. Uh, they're booked all around uh, the, the globe, getting a chance to speak to people, getting a chance to communicate both the churches and those in the LGBT community, and just speak uh, truth and grace. And so today, you're going to get a chance to see the fusion of both. I consider Christopher a, a good friend, and I want to uh, just uh, really enjoy the blessing of getting a chance to hear their story. If you heard them two years ago, it's an amazing blessing just hearing it all over again. So without any further ado, will you please give it up for Christopher Yuan. America, where money grows on trees <laughs> and streets are lined with gold. Well, at least that's what I perceived when I first passed through Ellis Island of New York City on October 30, 1964. I quickly realized how wrong I was the first night I stayed at my friend's rundown apartment in the slum of Harlem. Even more surprising was the day after, October 31st, when little people wear masks, ring doorbells, and trick or treat. I said to myself, what have I got myself into? Angela, my college sweetheart, came a few months later, and we married the next year. I also assumed, just because we were in love, we would simply live happily ever after. How naive I was. <laughs> we were not Christian then, and uh, as only son raising a traditional Chinese family, I thought being loyal to my parents was the most important. Therefore, I never emotionally left my parents and cleave to Angela. And uh, I tried to please both sides but end up please no one. Angela fell in love because I was not fully devoted to her. My father was well-liked, but very passive at home, so I never learned how to be 
a strong and loving husband. Without Jesus Christ, I didn't have the biblical principle how to love sacrificially. Things progressively get worse and worse after years of unresolved issues and self-centered living. Our marriage was a disaster. So with the encouragement from both of our sons, we began the paperwork for a divorce after 28 years of marriage. I never imagined. It's working. I never imagined that I would get a divorce. Since I was a little girl, I dreamed of belonging to a loving and caring family. While dating in college, Leon treated me like a princess. But my parents disapproved of our dating, and I refused to end our relationship. So my mom slapped my face for the first time in my life. However, I still consider our love to be true and everlasting. As soon as I finished college, I came to the U.S. for graduate school. But I decided to give up my full scholarship to get married instead. And my parents was furious. So I also found a full-time job. After we got married, Leon and I faced tremendous pressure and expectations for our parents on both sides, especially since Leon was the only son. I felt as if he had become a totally different person, and I cried through many sleepless nights. For years, I endured this for the sake of our two young sons. Leon was laid off from his first job and went back to school again. So I worked the night shift and providing the only income until Leon complete both his PhD and doctorate in dentistry. And we devoted our energy to build a thriving dental clinic. On the outside, we had all a new house in a comfortable suburb of Chicago, a husband with two doctorate and a both sons in dental school. But I was miserable, depressed, lonely, and felt like a total failure. So my dream of belonging to a loving and caring family became more and more distant as the years went by. So finally, we began the paperwork for a divorce. But I didn't think things were any worse. I was wrong. In the same year, on May 15th, 1993, our son Christopher came home and made the announcement, I am gay. Since our marriage relationship was hopeless, I did not work as a team with my wife to face this enormous challenge. Not only did I not comfort her, but I also accused her of making our son gay. Christopher's declaration affirmed my belief that we should all go our separate ways. Let him be, because there's nothing I can do about it. Besides, isn't it more important to be happy? But my wife responded quite differently. 
you will never think that three simple words, I am gay, could cause so much pain. I actually thought I could threaten Christopher with the ultimatum to choose the family or choose homosexuality. But Christopher already bought into the lie that he couldn't change, that he was born gay. So he said, if you cannot accept me, I have no other choice but to leave. Without any hesitation, Christopher picked up his bags and left. Nothing can describe how I felt at that moment. It was worse than receiving news of Christopher's death. He could have come in with a knife and it would have hurt less. I fell to the floor in shock and anguish and my body was numb and as cold as ice. Without any relatives or a church family, I had no one to turn to. In desperation, I went to the phone book and radio, hoping to find help, but there was none. In my mind, not only had my husband refused to stand by me, but also Christopher, who was closest to me, and my last ray of hope had also betrayed me. I was at the end of my rope as my world fell apart around me. I had no more reason to live. So I determined to do the unthinkable. I was going to end my life. Even though I was not a Christian at that time, I felt the need to meet with a minister who gave me a pamphlet on homosexuality. Then I left home, not telling Leah where I was going or what I was doing. I bought a one-way Amtrak ticket to Louisville, where I planned to say goodbye to Christopher for the last time before ending it all. With only my purse and the pamphlet from the minister, I bought on the train, thinking that death was the only answer to all my problems. Never being much of a reader, on the train, I began to read the pamphlet, which explained the plan of salvation, that all of us are sinners, yet God loves us in spite of our sin. God opened the eyes of my heart. Then I realized that just as God loves me, I could love Christopher in spite of him living as a gay man. I then look out the window and marvel at the beauty of nature. The fuse extending every direction and seem to have no end. I had been an atheist in all my life, but for the very first time, I noticed the wonder of creation, and I knew that there must be a God. One of my favorite verses today is Romans 1.20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, but being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. Even though everything around me proclaims the work of his hands. I had suppressed the truth of God for 51 years. I was
was without excuse. There is a God. I cannot remember if anyone else was on the trail with me. But it seems like I was there all along. I lost sense of time, as I sat there, in perfect peace. Then I heard a still, small voice. You belong to me. All my life, I have been longing to belong to somebody. First, my parents. Then, my husband. Finally, my children. But God, who knew my deepest need, told me that I belong to him. Those four words from God were like a healing balm to my shattered heart. Although I was not seeking God, I was found by my loving creator. After arriving in Louisville, I called a number on the back of the pamphlet and was connected to a Christian lady who began to disciple me. For six weeks, I immersed myself into the Bible and felt as if I couldn't soak up enough. I had never heard of a Bible bookstore. So when I was brought to one, I was like a little girl in the candy store. Along with the Bible, I read Christian book after Christian book from morning to night. And I ran the extended apartment. And my time in Louisville was like a private retreat. You see, I went to Louisville expecting to end my life. In reality, I did. Another one of my favorite verses is Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. After six weeks, I got a phone call from the lady who was discipling Angela. She was very excited, told me, your wife, has surrendered her life to Jesus Christ. She has been saved. I was not very pleased. <laughs> Told her this is not a good news. This is my worst nightmare because she has got on her side now. But what I realized that her transformation was not a Sunday only change, but it affected every day of the week. What she spent hours each morning in her prayer closet reading her Bible and interceding for Christopher. Her faith was vibrant and alive. What she had was not religion, but an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Little did I know that God was also work on me, and I started to go to church with her. And a friend of ours invited us to a Bible study called BSF, Bible Study Fellowship, where we began to grow deeper into the understanding of and love for God and His Word. It was while studying the Bible that I, uh, God removed the blinder from my eyes that I also surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. God started to heal our marriage by drawing 
both of us, toward himself. This was God's way for preparing us for the difficult years ahead. As our son Christopher headed deeper and deeper into the world of homosexuality. From my childhood years, I did what most Chinese American kids did. Obey your parents, do well in school, and of course, practice piano. <laughs> you see, I didn't fit in with the other American boys. I looked different, I acted different, and I had different interests. God had given me the gifts of music, of sensitivity, and Satan cannot take away those God-given gifts, but he can twist the perception of them. And from a young age, I was viewed and ridiculed as being effeminate. The first time I remember having these attractions was when I was nine years old, after I came across pornography at a friend's house. At nine. At that young age, I was confused and afraid of those feelings. Without any parental guidance on sexuality, those magazines gave me a distorted view of sex, and they soon became my master. Unfortunately, pornography has become the master of many adults and youth, men and women. Many parents do not know how easily accessible it is on the internet and do little or nothing to protect themselves and their children from it. Did you know that the pornography industry is a multi-billion dollar industry? There's a few other industries that are multi-billion dollar industries. Take the major television networks, ABC, CBS, and NBC. Their combined annual revenue is $6.2 billion. The combined annual revenue of the major league sports, baseball, base, basketball, hockey, football, is $12 billion. But if we were to add up these two industries, te television networks, major league sports, they would pale in comparison to the annual rev revenue of the pornography industry. $57 billion. We are in an all-out war with the pornography industry, and to be honest, we're losing miserably. Even scarier, statistics say 9 out of 10 children aged 8 to 16. Let me say that again, especially for you parents who have kids. 9 out of 10 children aged 8 to 16 have already viewed pornography on the internet, often by accident when simply doing their homework. 1 out of 5 children aged 10 to 17 have received a solicitation over the internet by a sexual predator. And oftentimes, kids had no idea and didn't know anything was wrong. Parents, I hope you're alarmed. So what can be done? Something my parents advocate is making sure that we all have double internet protection. That's having an internet filter and an accountability pro uh, program. How many of you guys have heard of internet filters? Okay. Having an internet filter blocks pornography sites from being viewed and, and can block other types of sites from being viewed as well. But as we know, there's no perfect computer program. So having an accountability program helps that logs in sites that are viewed. Two programs that we found uh, that we uh, have on our computers can be found at these two websites. One is caninewebprotection.com, the other one is x3watch.com. Both of these are free. There's other ones that you can pay for uh, that would have both of them, both the filter and the accountability program. Uh, Safe Eyes is one, Covenant Eyes is another one, Net Nanny is another. So everyone, if you have kids, if you own a computer, Feel free, get out your pen and paper, write this down. If you're a grandparent, you don't have kids in the home anymore, you have no clue what I'm talking about, that's okay. 
still write it down, make sure that then your children put it on your grandchildren's computer. Because you must remember, if garbage goes in, garbage is going to come out. There's a lot of great things on the internet. We all know that. But there's a lot of junk out there. There's a lot of garbage out there on the internet. I hear that for every one legitimate website, there are two pornographic websites. We also have to talk openly and frankly with our kids about sex and, and sexuality. We can no longer wait till they're 16 to talk to our kids about sex and sexuality. Whether you realize it or not, our public schools are talking about sex and sexuality, sometimes even in kindergarten. So for you to think, oh, I don't know, 9 or 10 might be too early, your kid may already have been exposed to sexuality at 5. If they watch television, Disney now is becoming gay and affirming. Well, not becoming, I'm sorry. They've always been gay affirming. They're just now out of the closet. <laughs> and can I talk to men for a moment here? Man to man. Ladies, you can listen in, but this is for men. Men, I know, as a man, we look at porn. And the reality is, you have looked at porn. Maybe still do. And there's an epidemic in the church among Christian men, and that epidemic is a pornography addiction. It's time, men, that we man up and said no to sexual immorality and say yes to sexual purity. It's about time. It's about time, men, that we realize that you can't do this alone. I would say many of men, us men, as we look at porn pornography, we think we can fight this on our own. You can't. You cannot. One of the first things that we must realize, men, is that we can't do it alone. You know the best weapon of Satan is isolation. And Satan is trying to isolate you into thinking, no one knows. Right? Don't we hear that all the time? Don't we hear that all the time? I'm not hurting anyone. I'm just, uh, no one knows. You're in the privacy of your little office and you look at porn. You're not honoring God and you're not honoring your wife. Men, we must, starting from today, take a stand for personal sexual purity. Not tomorrow. I want to see a generation of men who take this serious. And I'm not talking to you because I've, I've, I've kind of achieved that. I haven't. I'm talking from a broken man to another broken man. I'm talking from a sinful man to another sinful man. You can't do it alone. So what does that mean? First, admit you can't do it alone. Second, realize you can only do it in the power of the Holy Spirit, which means you better be pursuing intimacy with Christ before anything else. Before even intimacy with your wife, pursue intimacy with Christ because as you pursue intimacy with God, that will help you with your intimacy with your wife. And then third, seek out another brother. Talk to your pastor. Talk to an elder. 
and seek another man to do battle with. We are in war, and it's the war for our souls. Amen? Unfortunately for me, pornography with fueling my attractions, I had my first encounter when I was 16 years old, but I kept my feelings hidden through high school, college, even the Marine Corps Reserves. In my early 20s, I started secretly going out to the gay clubs in Chicago. Then when I moved to Louisville, Kentucky, where I started dental school, pursuing my doctorate, I no longer kept it a secret, and I came out of the closet. Spending most of my free time in the gay clubs, I went from relationship to relationship, seeking intimacy and happiness, which we're all looking for, right? But it still left me feeling unfulfilled and unsatisfied. So I began experimenting with drugs. Now, I have to note, not all gays and lesbians do drugs or promiscuous. Some do, some do not. Unfortunately, that's part of my story, and I want to be authentic about my story. But it goes to show if you encounter Jesus, he will impact every aspect of your life. So I began experimenting with drugs. But remember, I was a dental student, which meant I didn't have much money. So I supported my habit by selling drugs. And I sold to friends, classmates, even a professor. You see, I actually thought I could live this double life of being a graduate student by day and a promiscuous drug dealer by night. But three months before I was to receive my doctorate, the administration expelled me. So my parents flew from Chicago to Louisville, Kentucky, and I thought they were to fight to keep me in school. You see, my dad's a dentist. He knew the dean really well. All they needed to do was to threaten a lawsuit, and I'd stay in school for three months and get my doctorate. Besides, isn't that what any good Chinese parent should do anyway? But to my surprise, as we sat there in the dean's office, my mother looked at the dean and said, it's not important that Christopher becomes a dentist. What's more important is that Christopher becomes a Christ follower. And they said that they're going to support whatever decision the school made. They knew that nothing, absolutely nothing was more important than their children knowing Jesus. Nothing even more important than education or career. Well, let me just tell you, I was not happy about that decision, okay? I was not happy. They were not on my side. They were on the school side. So I moved further away from them, further away from Chicago, to the bright lights in big city of Atlanta, Georgia. And there I quickly took over the drug scene in the gay community. I became a supplier to other dealers in over a dozen states. In addition, it was nothing for me to have multiple anonymous sexual encounters each and every day. Because according to the world, I had it all. Money, fame, drugs, and sex. I had exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And I began worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. Because in my world, I had become God. Leon and I had no idea that Christopher was doing drugs, but we knew his biggest need was to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. So I sent him Christian cards several times a week, and I filled them with encouraging words, scripture, and hymns. 
at the bottom of each card, I sign, "Love you forever, Ma." But little did I know he never read them and simply tossed them into the trash. I called him frequently, but I always got his voicemail. I would leave messages, but he never called me back. Once he even threatened that if we ever brought up God, we would never see him again. We thought Christopher might come home for the holidays if we bought him a plane ticket. So on Christmas Eve, I went to O'Hare Airport to pick him up. That was before 9-11, when we could still go to the gate to greet our guests. I stood there peering down the jet bridge in anticipation for Christopher. As the arriving passenger came into view, my heart leaped with excitement, but then dropped in disappointment because I realized that was not Christopher. When uh, the last person came off the plane, I realized Christopher was not on the flight. So I drove home and came back several hours later for the next flight, but only repeat what had happened hours before. And when I met my son, and I realized our son, Christopher, was not returning in tears. I drove back home alone. Since Christopher would not come to us, we went to him. We flew to Atlanta, but on the second day, he kicked us out, not even allow us to call a friend to pick us up. Before leaving, I offered Christopher something I precious that was my very first Bible. Not surprisingly, he refused, but I left on his counter anyway when walked out the door. We found out later, as soon as we walked out the door, he took my Bible and threw into the trash. It was more than obvious that he was totally unreachable and completely hopeless. We knew that it was going to take a God-sized miracle to turn things around. So my wife began to pray a very bold prayer. God, do whatever it takes to bring this prodigal son to you. As hopeless as things were, we committed, my wife and I committed, not to focus on the hopelessness, but on the promises of God. Along with over a hundred prayer warriors from our own church, and from the Bible study fellowship group, we cry out to God for Christopher. In her desperation, my wife began fasting. She fasted every Monday for seven years. And once fasted 39 days for Christopher. Every morning, she would literally spend hours in her prayer closet, on her knees, reading her Bible, 
interceding for Christopher and praying for herself, for me, and for many others. She wrote down some of her prayers. Following is one of those prayers. I will stand in the gap for Christopher. I will stand until the victory is won, until Christopher's heart changes. I will stand in the gap every day, and there I will fervently pray. And Lord, just one favor, don't let me waver. If things get quite rough, which they may, I will never give up on that son, nor will you. Though the enemy seeks to destroy, I will not quit as I intercede, though it may take years. I give you my fears and tears as I trust every moment I plead. I prayed those prayers for eight years, and it seemed that God was not answering them. But during those years, God did answer my prayers, just not in the way I expected. His answer for me was, wait, be still, and know that I am God. Looking back upon those years when I prayed for change, God did bring change. The change was not yet in Christopher, but the change was in me and my husband. What God intended for that time was that we will be changed that we will be transformed, that we will be trophies of God's mercy. As what Chambers said, we are not here to prove God answers prayer. We are here to be living monuments of God's grace. As we live out of those years of waiting, we learn to walk and live as monuments of his grace as God drew us to himself each and every day. Often answered a prayer doesn't come quickly. And this definitely was not an exception. But my parents were unwavering in their faithfulness to intercede on my behalf. Like the persistent widow, my mother bombarded heaven with her prayers. She knew that it would take nothing short of a miracle to bring this prodigal son to the Father. And a miracle is exactly what God did. This miracle came one day with a bang on my door. I opened up my door, and on my front doorstep were 12 Federal Drug Enforcement Agents, Atlanta Police, and two big German Shepherd dogs. I just received a large shipment of drugs, not my largest, but they confiscated all my money and my drugs, and I was charged with the street value equivalent of 9.1 tons of marijuana. With that amount, I was facing 10 years to life in federal prison. I had started with a bright future among society's finest in academia, and I found myself in the ditch among society's despised in the Atlanta City Detention Center. So I tried calling my friends, you know, those type of friends that say, whenever you need something, just give me a call. Those friends that actually get me more into trouble than they're any good for me. 
Well, what I didn't realize was I had a praying mother at home. Watch out. <laughs> and she knew as long as I had those type of friends around, I would find no need for God and no need for my parents. And remember, she loves bold prayers where she prayed specifically years ago that somehow, some way, God would cause all of those friends to desert me. And on that day, not one friend answered my collect call. So your mothers, beware of your prayers. They're going to come true. <laughs> so I was down to the bottom of the list. Home. And I did not want to make that phone call. As I imagined the earful that I was going to get on the other line. But my mother's first words were, Son, are you okay? No condemnation. No berating words. Just words of unconditional love and grace. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 2 verse 4 that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Notice that it doesn't say it's God's anger. It's not God's wrath. It is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And even on that miserable day, God was pouring out his grace and drawing me to himself through the words of my mother. Actually, my mom was excited to get that phone call, if you can believe it or not, because I hadn't called home in years. And she knew without a doubt that this was God's answer to her prayers. So as she hung up that phone, fighting back the tears, she knew she had to do just as that good old hymn says. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. No matter what storm she was going through, no matter what heartache she was enduring, she had to count her blessings. So she set the phone down and she reached out next to the phone was a calculator. And she tore off a little piece of the adding machine tape. And on this tape, she wrote down these first blessings. Christopher is in a safe place compared to before. And he called home for the very first time. As my years in prison passed, she kept adding to this list and counting her blessings and taping more pieces of Adam machine tape to it. And today, this list of blessings is longer and taller than she is. <laughs> Both sides. Three days later, I was walking around the cell block and I passed by this garbage can and they don't take the garbage out every day. So it was a mound of trash. And I looked at this trash and I thought to myself, this is so much like my life right now. I'm from upper middle class suburb of Chicago. My father has two doctorates. I was only three months away from receiving my own doctorate. I had it made. But now I found myself among common criminals. Trash, 
with my head down. I was about to pass by that garbage can, but something on top of the trash caught my eye. I bent over, I picked it up, and it was a Gideon's New Testament. I took the New Testament back to my cell and I opened up that good book. For the first time, I read through the entire Gospel of Mark that night. But let me tell you, I wasn't thinking this is the Word of God. I wasn't even thinking this will be the answer to some of my problems. No, actually, I was simply thinking I've got an enormous amount of time on my hands and I better pass it somehow. <coughs> but as many of you know, what we have in our Bible is not just ink <coughs> on paper. But what we have in our Bibles is the very breath of God. And it is living and powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword, able to go through the hardest of parts, exposing my sin, my rebellion, and it wasn't a pretty sight. Then I thought things couldn't get any worse. I was wrong. A couple weeks later, I was called into the nurse's office. They handcuffed me, chained my hands around my waist, shackled my feet together. I shuffled into, into the nurse's office. She shut the door behind me, sat me down, and I knew something wasn't right. She was uncomfortably struggling with the words. She couldn't even give me eye contact. So she resigned to writing something on a piece of paper and slowly slid it across the desk to me. I looked down at this piece of paper and I saw three letters and a symbol. It read H. IV positive. A few days before Christmas, I received Christopher's phone call from jail. The noise in the background could not cover up his sad and hopeless words. Mom, I am HIV positive. His silent and weak voice trailed off as my body went limp. I felt dizzy, and the world around me seemed to stop. Ever since Christopher told us he was gay, I lived with this constant fear that Christopher might one day contract this deadly virus. My worst nightmare was now a reality. Christopher was sentenced six years a federal prison. But news of his HIV status was like a death sentence, a verdict I could not accept.
the phone. The pains of grief torn at my broken heart like a knife. I stumbled up the steps, and my leg lost their strength. And with one arm against the wall, and I dragged my heavy body into my prayer closet. Under the cross, I fell to my knees. A stinging tears blur my eyes. This affliction was more than I could bear. In the silence of my sorrow, a hit melody began to play in my heart. The still and soft hymns fill my ears and repeat over and over. It is well. It is well with my soul. After receiving that devastating news, I was in my cell alone, and I lied in my bunk, just contemplating the mess that I've made of my life. And I looked up at the metal bunk above me, and there was graffiti, profanity, gang symbols. But someone had written something in the corner, and it read, "If you're bored, read Jeremiah twenty-nine eleven. For I know the plans that I have for you," declares Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. You see, at the most hopeless point in my life, God was using the words penned by a prophet 
thousands of years ago to a rebellious nation, Israel, to tell me that regardless of who I was and what I had done in the past, he still had a plan for me. I had no idea where this plan was going to take me. But God gave me enough faith, enough strength to get through that one day and the next and the next. My transformation was gradual. I wish I could tell you I got down on my knees, said a sinner prayer, and everything after that was just perfect. I didn't have any more problems. That's far from the truth. God was convicting me the dependencies that I had in my life, the idols. I had many. The most obvious was drugs. I was in prison for drugs. That was obvious. But within a few months, God delivered me from the bondage of that addiction. But the last thing that I was holding on to that I just felt like I couldn't let go of was my sexual identity. I was reading through the Bible. It was so clear to me that God loved me unconditionally. But then I came across those passages in the Bible, three in the old, three in the new, that seemed to condemn that core part of who I thought I was, my sexuality. So I went to a chaplain. You know, I'm a new Christian. I don't know that much about the Bible. And I wanted to ask someone who should know more about the Bible, the chaplain. So I shared with him about my past. And to my surprise, the chaplain actually told me that the Bible does not condemn homosexuality. And he gave me a book from a shelf. He said, here, this book explains this view. So with much curiosity, I took that book in the hopes of finding biblical justification for homosexuality. I wanted my cake and eat it too. I had that book in one hand and the Bible in the other. And let me just tell you from a purely human perspective, I had every reason in the world, every single reason in the world to accept what that book is claiming to justify the way I had been living. But God's indwelling Holy Spirit convicted me that those assertions from that book were a clear distortion of God, His Word, and His unmistakable condemnations against gay sex and relationships. I couldn't even finish that book, and I gave it back to the chaplain, which meant that I turned to the Bible alone. And I went through every verse, every chapter, every page of Scripture looking for any type of a blessing of a monogamous gay relationship. I wanted to find any type of a positive affirmation for two men in a loving relationship, in a loving romantic relationship. I looked. I went cover to cover several times. I had time. I looked. <laughs> And I looked, and I looked, and I couldn't find any. So I was at a turning point. And a decision had to be made. Either abandon God and His Word and live as a gay man and pursue a monogamous gay relationship by allowing my attractions, get this, my attractions to not only dictate who I was, but also how I lived. Or abandon pursuing a monogamous gay relationship by liberating myself, by freeing myself from my attractions and live 
as a follower of Jesus Christ. My decision was clear and obvious. I followed Jesus. As the days and the weeks and the months of abstinence passed, I realized a few things. First, abstaining from sex is actually possible. Who knew? Second, <laughs> sexual abstinence, I realized, is not going to make me go crazy, no matter what Freud and Oprah say. Third, I realized that abstaining from sex, that my sexuality should not be the core of who I am. See, I used to tell myself, God loves me unconditionally, so therefore he doesn't want me to change. Don't we like to add to God's truth? It's true, God loves us unconditionally, but we like to add to God's truth. And I add it, so therefore he doesn't want me to change. We hear that all the time. God loves me just the way I am, so leave me alone. But now after reading the Bible, I found out something very important, that unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. Let me say that again. Unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. My identity should never be defined just by my sexuality. My identity shouldn't be grounded in my attractions. My identity is not gay, ex-gay, or even, get this, or even heterosexual for that matter. Because my identity as a child of the living God must be in Jesus Christ alone. God says, be holy, for I am holy. You know, I, I thought that if I were to become a Christian, that I would have to become straight. I would have to become a heterosexual. That the more heterosexual I was, the more Christian I would be. But I realized that even people who have heterosexual feelings, they still struggle with sin. So therefore, that should not be the goal. Besides, God never said, be heterosexual, for I am heterosexual. But neither did he say, be homosexual, for I am homosexual. But rather, God said, be holy, for I am holy. So the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality. That is never the goal and shouldn't be the goal. But the opposite of homosexuality is holiness. As a matter of fact, the opposite of anything is holiness. I shouldn't focus upon my temptations, or my attractions, or even my desire for a relationship, as important as that might be, but I needed to focus upon living a life of holiness and living a life of purity. Because change is not the absence of struggles. Change is not the absence of temptations. God does not promise you, come to Jesus and you'll never be tempted by sin. No. Change is the ability to be holy in the midst of your temptations. Because the ultimate issue is not what I'm struggling with, not my temptations or my desires, but the ultimate issue is that I yearn after God in total surrender and complete obedience.
As I began to live this life of surrender and obedience, God began to reveal His plan for my life, and He called me to full-time ministry while I was in prison, of all places. And I realized that it didn't matter where I was, whether in prison or out of prison, because my calling on life would remain the same regardless of the location. And with that change of heart, God did another miracle, and He shortened my sentence from six years to three years, which is almost unheard of in the federal system. So with only about a year left of my, of my prison sentence, I knew if I was going to continue on to ministry after prison, I'd better learn more about the Bible than just prison religion. So I called up, collected my parents, told them, I think God's calling me to ministry, and I asked them to mail me an application to the only Bible college I had ever heard of at that time in our hometown Chicago called Moody Bible Institute. But then there was silence under the line because I think they both dropped their phones. <laughs> They mailed the application into me to prison. I was so excited when I got it. I tore it open, began filling out, writing out the essays until I got to the end of the application where they asked me for references. <laughs> Not from anybody, but specifically people who knew me as a Christian for at least one year. The only people that knew me as a Christian for at least one year were people in prison. So I had some slim pickings. But I was able to persuade a prison chaplain, a prison guard, and another prison inmate to write my references to Moody. So one of the greatest miracles of this whole story is that Moody actually accepted me. <laughs> I was released from prison in July of 2001, and I started the very next month in August of 2001. So imagine the surprise of my classmates when I answered their question, what did you do this summer? <laughs> I graduated from Moody in 2005, went on to my Master's of Arts in Biblical Exegesis from Wheaton College Graduate School, received my Doctorate of Ministry last year in 2014 from Bethel Seminary. Praise God. A miracle. I also had the honor of co-authoring a book with my mother called Out of a Far Country, A Gay Son's Journey to God, A Broken Mother's Search for Hope. We have some available outside. She wrote chapter one. I wrote chapter two. She wrote chapter three. She actually wrote all the odd chapters. I wrote the even chapters. Because we wanted to show you from our own vo uh, first-person voice how you can have the same situation told from two totally different perspectives, and yet God and His power and His grace brought us all back together. In the back of every book um, is this discussion guide. Actually, the Spanish book was just released three days ago, and we have that out, uh, outside. Even we have this uh, Chinese book, uh, if any of you guys know Chinese. But in the back of every book, in, in the back of the Spanish, Chinese, English, and we even have it in German, there's a study guide. And we wanted to write that to, to help people continue that conversation. S many small groups are using that to help guide them in their discussion on biblical sexuality. Youth groups are even using it as a curriculum. And we've also found out that many Christian high schools are using our book as a textbook. And it makes sense. I don't know if you realize this or not, but our youth and our young adults are intentionally being flooded inundated with resources on sexuality, starting from kindergarten. And the majority of all these resources are all from a non-Christian perspective. 
And yet we have so few to give to our kids that our kids will actually read to help not just give them a foundation of biblical sexuality, but show them biblical sexuality. So sometimes people go back to our book table, and one time we had this old lady, she went back there and she's like, I want 12 books. And we're like, you only need one. (laughs) And she says, I have 12 grandchildren who all need to know what biblical sexuality looks like. Silence is no longer an option. But that choice is up, up to us to make. Amazingly, God has given us back the years that the locusts have taken away. Or my parents and I, we travel around the nation, around the world, as a two-generational ministry. How, how amazing is that? As a two-generational ministry, talking about God's grace and God's truth on this issue of sexuality. As it, and then as if that huge blessing wasn't enough, God has a sense of humor. How many of you guys know God has a sense of humor? God has an amazing sense of humor because he's brought me back to Moody where I'm now teaching in the Bible department. So I went from prisoner to professor. How about that for a resume? But God has done far more abundantly, far more abundantly beyond all that we have asked or thought. Our story, very sensational, very amazing what God has done, seems to focus so much upon one prodigal. But it's not. It's not a story about a prodigal. It's a story about a family of prodigals. All of us were or still are prodigals. The reality is many of you have prodigals in your life. A prodigal daughter, a prodigal nephew, prodigal aunt, and things seem hopeless, and you're about to give up. Can I remind you tonight that as dire and hopeless as things might seem now, we do not serve a God of hopelessness. We serve a God of hope. In Him, There is hope. In him, we can find that hope. So in your situation, whatever it might be, focus upon him. Focus upon Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for what you have done in us. Help us, God, to live even in the midst of hopelessness. Help us to be a people that finds our joy in you alone, O God. Lord, help us to be men of purity, 
Help us to be a people who values your holiness more than anything else, Lord God. Help us to be the church who will be there for each other as we wage this spiritual battle. Lord, help us to break for those prodigals in our life and cling to you, cling to hope. God, we praise you, we thank you, and we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Yes, let's thank uh, Christopher and his family. Okay, so you got a chance to hear the story, but that's got to, I mean, it's got to prompt questions. There's got to still be like, yeah, but. I mean, yeah, but what about this? Or don't you think that this is a little unfair? The thing that we want to do is we, wanna, we don't want to just present you with a testimony. We think testimony is powerful and important. But this is a church where questions are open. And, and even like, I, I don't know I, if I can wrap my brain around that. Or I need to ask more deeper questions. We want to provide you with that. So tonight at 6.30, we're going to have Christopher give just a brief, this is a Christian's response then to this issue. And then we're going to pepper him with the hardest questions we can come up with. And so what we want you to do is to come tonight. You're going to be able to write down some questions. And I'm going to field those to Christopher. And we're going to give him the hardest questions we've got. Do not come with softball questions. Do not come with anything that's We want hard, difficult questions that are real life, things that you're going through, that you know of someone going through, or just like questions. I have a hard time biblically with this. Help me understand it. And so we're going to go ahead and do that tonight. So make sure you're here from 630. We're going to go ahead and uh, it'll just be about an hour and a half or so. But we're really looking forward to that. Make sure you go ahead and talk with him as well. The thing I love about Christopher's story is this. This is not a story that's just for someone who self-identifies as gay or an LGBT community. This is not just a story of, of a prodigal. As Christopher said, this is all of our story. Amen? Every single one of us comes before Jesus as a one who's broken vessel who surrenders before him, no matter what you're leading, no matter what your backstory is. And it's his kindness, as he pointed out, that leads us to repentance. Amen? Amen. We're going to see you tonight, and uh, I'm just